0: You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer,
1: more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This week, joining me in studio is our correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome back.
2: Hi, Andre. Thanks for having me.
1: And it's been a while since we've done an episode bringing you all up to date on the latest science news that isn't related to COVID-19. So we thought we'd do that again this week. And uh, well, shall I start? Sure. Go ahead. So one of the stories that caught my eye uh, was published in the Astrophysical Journal, not one that I read regularly. Um, so <laughs> I caught this one through Science Daily. Uh, it's by Tom Westby and Christopher Conselice, Not sure if I'm pronouncing that surname correctly. But what I thought was interesting was that they came up with a new calculation of the likelihood of intelligent life on other planets within our own galaxy.
2: Okay, so kind of like the Drake equation?
1: Yes, exactly. But in this case, they took into account uh, galactic star formation histories the distribution of metals, and the likelihood of stars hosting planets that are Earth-like in their habitable zones. So they made assumptions based on a situation in which an intelligent communicative life form is known to exist.
2: I see. Okay.
1: That's us on Earth. That's us. <laughs> um, like, for example, that you need a metal-rich planet and that it takes about 5 billion years to in- to evolve an intelligent life, for- life form.
2: The best data we have so far.
1: Yeah, so That's... far. And of one. And even under the strictest scenario uh, in their model, they found that there should be at least 36 civilizations in just the Milky Way.
2: That's incredible.
1: Yeah, right? So they say at least because this scenario posits that the lifetime of a civilization with communication technology is 100 years, also based on our model. So we've had radio, you know, they've guessed the first kind of long form communication technology for about 100 years Mm -hmm. and the truth is is that we don't know how much longer we're going to survive right (laughs) so maybe after about 100 years uh the average communicating extraterrestrial intelligent civilization uh burns itself out
2: wait 100 years yeah but we've already exceeded that well just barely yeah got it wow okay
1: (laughs) okay right So, um, but the truth is the galaxy is very big, uh, and that means, according to their model, that it's possible that the closest communicating extraterrestrial intelligent civilization can be as far as 17,000 light years away.
2: Right, right.
1: So, if we actually want to communicate with it or hear from it, we need to stick around a lot longer.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So I guess that's the question. What do you think? Do you think we're going to be around long enough to meet up with one of these civilizations?
2: I think so. Because (laughs) in geologic time, 17,000 years is a drop in the bucket. Uh Uh-huh. And hominid species have been around for millions of years.
1: Well, yeah, I guess 1.5 or so. But like, it took us a long time to figure out how to develop this kind of technology. And I don't think we're doing a really great job of keeping our planet habitable. Yeah. <laughs> so are we, you know, it means we need to stick around for a lot longer, as I mentioned. And so hopefully we can. Yeah. But I think that, I don't know, I thought it was a really interesting kind of way of trying to kind of calculate the, this, this likelihood um, with, of course, this caveat that the galaxy is large.
2: Well, it's interesting because I think we've all known about the Drake equation for a long time. This one, again, I'm not an expert in the Drake equation and astrobiology, but this one, this attempt seems to put some constraints Mm -hmm. around the Drake equation. They come up with some fascinating estimates and it helps to put, yeah, I guess our current technological state and the prospects of community, if this is accurate, the prospects of communicating with another life form somewhere else in our galaxy as uh, a very long-term plan. Mm-hmm. And something we need to stick around for, I yeah. guess, yeah, because it, you, it, unless you have some something that could exceed or you know, clearly seventeen thousand light years, mm-hmm. you know, how can you exceed that unless you do some crazy time space, you know, folding and and be able to uh, uh, exceed that? But uh, yeah, seventeen thousand cool. years.
1: I think people are working on teleportation, but uh, not quite right. there yet. Right. <laughs> well, I guess maybe when we when we accomplish that. We'll have to revise this whole uh, model as teleportation might, you know, mean that that kind of communication is more or less likely. Who knows?
2: Yeah. The 100-year estimate on the civilization with communication technology. I get it that the only evidence we have of the – is is us. Yeah. So the, So it's the, it's the only species that we can base it on. So the 5 billion years to get there and then 100 years beyond it is kind of what the, the limits of our understanding at this point. I wonder what happens to these data if you start to change around some of the assumptions. You know, yeah. 4 billion years to intelligence and 10,000 years with co- communication technology. I mean, then it Does seems it like it the more, likelihood would yeah. be
1: yeah, I mean this is like this is like the worst case scenario I think according to the model which I thought was really interesting.
2: Yeah, because I, you know, most you it's a it's a common theme in science fiction that there are ancient but very advanced civilizations mm-hmm. that either have been here, can get here, which is part of the fear, right? Because if anyone does reach us, we certainly didn't have the technology to reach them, and likely we would be subordinate to them in many ways. And so uh, I, I'm curious to know if the, if they played around with those variables, how different some of these results would be.
1: Yeah, I didn't get into too many of the nitty gritty details.
2: <laughs> is, the, is there a model that's uh, available as, as a supplementary material that you can play around with? I'm curious. Uh, well, that's kind of interesting.
1: let's see. Um, yeah, I don't know about that, yeah. I have to figure that out, although it's uh, already been downloaded twenty five hundred and thirty four times, that seems like a lot of readers
2: well, since the release by the Pentagon of those uh, would appear to be unexplainable objects of videos, you yeah, know, which are which you know has clearly reignited interest in ufos and and uh what was the name of the i'm blanking now the name of the comet that uh crossed through our our, our universe uh Unamamu, sorry what was it called i don't know yeah it was called like Wanamamu okay yeah it was it was thought to be there was some con, there was some conjecture that oh that's right it was, that it was it could be an alien spacecraft like a solar right. sail or right. something because of its regular um we'll, we'll, we'll find the name of it it's like a wanamanu
1: yeah yeah. Okay, well, I'll look for it while you tell me about your story.
2: Well, mine is very different. You're going from the far away and potentially very large and the expanses of space. I went down to the nano kind of subatomic molecule uh, space with a very recent article that was published in Science Advances by a group primarily in Luzon, Switzerland, it looked like the senior author was Sandor or Sander Cassis, Cassus and they used uh, atomic force microscopy known as afm to measure biological activity in yeast mm. so if you know afm and i known it only on a high level but afm is has often been used to uh, determine the topography of a sample at a basically atomic scale. Hmm. How it works is actually quite elegant, but it's scaled down to something extremely nanotech small, where you have a single probe that's a very fine point that's attached to what would be a cantilever. And as that cantilever is moved over a sample, the bumps and ridges then deflect that cantilever and make it move almost like a, a, an arm uh, on a record player. And then you have a laser... That is bouncing off the cantilever and detects the motion of it, and so Hmm. you get a composite topography of the surface of your uh, of your sample. Okay. So that's atomic force microscopy, really fascinating. But what this group did, which I think was interesting, is instead of using a moving uh, the sample, moving the uh, the the AFM probe over a static uh, and inanimate sample, they took live living uh, yeast. And we're looking at essentially the pulsations and the what they call nanomotions of the 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 yeast's uh, cellular uh, activities. Okay. So yeah, so the so the title of this was called "Single Yeast Cell Nanomotions Correlate with Cellular Activities." What they found was that if you position the probe over these yeasts that are living in different substrates, you can. Uh, you can detect a frequency pattern of oscillation at a relatively low frequency of around two hertz. Okay. So two times per second, you can see that these uh, these yeast are essentially at a very small scale. They're pulsating. Now, how would you determine that? You can look at the distribution of the movements detected by the, the cantilever over time, and you can plot that, and you can show that it's not random. It has a sort of synchronicity that's not random. They actually compared it, to, to just other inanimate silicon beads in the mm. same substrate that, that do also move, but they're, they're more of a random distribution. Again, they can be sub, uh, kind of atomic particles. Again, these are living, uh, these are living creatures. These are you know, yeast. And so they did a, a number of experiments where they either changed the temperature of the medium, and they got to 30 degrees Celsius— which is the most permissive temperature for their growth mm-hmm. and and f- physiology they showed that that was the most it was the strongest oscillations or the biggest hmm. movements they could detect and importantly which i thought was cool is they basically took some different ways of killing the fungi either with ethanol or certain antifungals and you could show that you could um essentially detect the transition from life to death by virtue of the uh by virtue of um, you know these nano motions is detected by AFM. Hmm. So I thought what was cool about it is that here you have these molecular processes that you could observe with these little molecular oscillations that's detected by AFM. Now they don't know what is the biological biological process inside the yeast that mm-hmm. underlies it. It's likely it's some sort of. Actin cytoskeletal depolymerization and repolymerization, write something about the cytoskeleton of the yeast. You could you could easily test that by throwing a number of molecular agents in there, some chemical reagents that could either block certain enzymes or have other biological processes, very doable. But what I thought was cool is that you know this you could set this up to be automated. You could compare it with a deep learning algorithm or some, some machine learning, and you could really increase the throughput of designing new antifungals or understanding fungal physiology, which seemed like a really interesting melding of the biological applications, which what I think of at Thomas Sports microscopy as being purely in the physics realm. Mm. And so I kind of like the marrying of those two uh, those two approaches.
1: Yeah, I mean, we know fungi that live on humans are notoriously hard to kill.
2: Yeah, and they That's, and so. they they did this on... The, uh, of the genus can, can, can Candida, Candida, okay, right, that right. is known for candidiasis. Yeah, interesting. Um, huh. So this is it definitely has some real kind of health implications, but obviously it's very early stage.
1: So the comet is the Oumuamua, is that how you know pronounce it? Oumuamua? Oh, oh, yeah, Oumuamua.
0: Oumuamua. Oh, oh,
2: yeah, and there was a very highly regarded like Harvard physicist who wrote a thought paper that it could that it has certain characteristics that we should we should not discount the possibility as remote as it is that it could be a intelligently designed you know extraterrestrial vehicle
0: bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da ba ba ba.
1: So you know we've uh we've we've got a six year old son. And he often asks us questions that are hard to answer. That's right. Uh, but he hasn't asked this one yet. So, but I thought maybe we should be prepared with an answer. So, why are plants green?
2: Chlorophyll in the
1: sure that's mm-hmm. what makes them green. But but why would they choose to right. reflect? Why would they green yeah, absorb all the other
2: wavelengths and and, yeah. and bounce off? And green. It doesn't
1: really make sense because in, in by some measures the wavelength of light that we see as green is actually the peak. Of the sun's energy output, hmm. so it's they're they're missing the right. best part, right? Kind of, yeah, the plants why, are. Why are giving they doing up? that? So there was a, losing out
2: on peak energy. That's right, yeah. right?
1: They're not efficient.
2: Yeah, because if you basically <laughs> and, just want to get electron transfer, why wouldn't you have this?
1: And since plants have been around longer than humans have been, you'd think that they'd be models of efficiency by now, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Well, uh, a paper in Science this week by Trevor Arp and colleagues, senior author Nathaniel Gabor they were asking this question, why doesn't the chlorophyll in plants absorb peak sunlight, instead reflecting it? And so they proposed this noise-canceling network model, essentially to explain how noisy physiological conditions, because the sun is not constant, it has flares, it has changes, um, are related to power conversion efficiency. So the bottom line is that by avoiding the peaks... The plants also minimize disruption from solar events or from variations in the solar energy emitted by the sun. So I thought he so that the senior author, Nathaniel Gabor, used this really interesting metaphor to describe photosynthesis that I think really brings this home for me, at least the idea of the kitchen sink. So if the faucet uh, lets the water in and a drain lets it out, you want to make sure Mm -hmm. that the sink doesn't overflow. But if the faucet is flowing much faster all of a sudden than the sink is able to drain, you get an overflow. If that happens in a plant cell, you get oxidative stress, and that damages Mm -hmm. the cell. So instead, plants have cells that are not optimized to get the most energy, but are protecting themselves from burning out if there's a solar flare.
2: Hmm. I wonder if you could, knowing what we have now, tools for genetic um, uh, alteration of plants, and if we know, you know kind of oxidation and mitochondrial function if you could engineer them to have a higher capacity for energy mm. and then give them the ability to capture uh other wavelengths, kind of peak wavelengths of light.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then So if then you'd you
2: have maybe you could retain the others, but they can always get the boost when it's available. And could
1: they yeah, could they grow more quickly? Would that be like a way yeah. of of uh use in agriculture? Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to see. Hmm. OK, so I have one more kind of fun uh, study to talk about, which uh, and it's mainly fun just because I can't imagine what it's like to be a research assistant in this lab. It's like always like one of my fun uh, kind of imaginative exercises, like what is it like to work for this person? Um, so there's a, a biologist at the University of Michigan named Elizabeth Tibbets, and uh, her- she and her students collected female Polistus fuscarus paper wasps. Uh, in Ann Arbor in early spring. And this Pieces of Wasp is kind of interesting in terms of its social social behavior. So instead of having like a queen that does all the reproduction, there are several females that reproduce and they're called foundresses. But they fight each other to establish these hierarchies of dominance. And so that kind of then allows them, like their place in the hierarchy determines like how much they reproduce, how much they need to work, how much food they get, and so forth. Um, and so I think that's, that's, first of all, that's interesting, right? Uh, and then secondly, so then, then they, so these research assistants and, and, and uh, you know, well, the people who work for the lab, and they're probably not just all assistants, maybe grad students and postdocs do. But anyway, they collected these wasps, and then they used enamel to mark them so they knew who was who. And then they would put them in these uh, little, well, two of them they would choose as being the current fighters. They'd put them in a little fighting arena, like imagine like a boxing ring that was surrounded by these clear plastic partitions. And then they'd have two bystanders looking through those partitions. Um, And then they would score the fighters. So imagine you're (laughs) like an RA in this lab and your job is to watch these videos and assign points uh, for things like biting grappling, stinging, um, and especially a behavior that is mounting, uh, because ultimately the rank of the female is determined by how many times it mounted another female. So like mm. that would be the winner, mm-hmm. right? So like a higher, more dominant female would have mounted a more subordinate female more times. Um, so, okay. So, so these researchers are like doing this kind of, you know, they're assigning numbers, Uh, And then they're watching what happens when the bystanders who were watching through the partition were paired either with a fighter that they observed or someone else, like another bystander or whatever, um, or a new new wasp. And they found that when they were paired with the loser or uh, a wasp that was more of a victim that was mounted more times or was more passive in another fight – the bystanders were more aggressive. So it's like kind of they knew, like, that's the one I can dominate. Um, And so I think this is a really interesting study. It was uh, published in Current Biology, showing that wasps, like, they have tiny, tiny, tiny brains, right? They're not even as smart as honeybees, right? Uh, Which have, we know, like, a very big social life and and so forth, and, and they seem very smart. But they're able to observe, remember, and then shape their own behavior as a result of that information, which I think is really interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is a a type of social sensitivity that we've seen certainly in primate troops Mm -hmm. when they're establishing or changing up hierarchies. Uh, That's that's really fascinating. And I know there's a lot of work in these types of observational learnings, like even with like tadpole guppies Mm. that I recall. Uh, reading earlier, I guess this tells us that the movie Maya and the Bee—that I guess that was <laughs> that was hornets, but the wasps. This is this is a much different mechanism to establish, I guess, the queen than you'd have in a beehive. Right? Yeah, I don't know how that. Do they know why or on what? What were the the um, the bystander wasps? What were they sensitive to? What were they? What were they? Because were they, they're not, are they just looking visually or was there something like, yeah, it's uh, usually good it's question. olfactory signals, although you have a lot of data showing the different points of at least hunting in wasps, that they'll use different sensory modalities at different stages mm-hmm. of their of their hunting and they can adopt at near term, they can they can adopt uh, visual cues. So. I mean,
1: it seems like it must be visual because I don't know that the olfactory cues would be that different, you know, if they're Unless watching
2: too. Unless there's something to- on, the, on the loser, it, Oh, herself. that gets
1: after the mounting. So, as right, they're right, right. As they're, they're being, mounted, um, they're leaving something. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's some olfactory
2: cue, isn't like, I lost.
1: Yeah. Or, oh, interesting. You know, yeah. Because you
2: could imagine, we've seen this in other, that certainly in primates, maybe I'm making too far of a phylogenetic leap, but the chemist, the kind of the biochemical changes in the, subordinate animals mm-hmm. perhaps is some leading to something that it could be uh, another conspecific could be sensitive to yeah you know, maybe they're just new... stressed yeah <laughs> they're yeah, showing like be. some other kind of stress behavior yeah. that we don't
1: see yeah interesting anyway well that's it for this week and another episode of inquiring minds thank you for joining us if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and with me is... Adam Bristol. You can find me on Twitter at Indravis, and I will see you next week. More we see.
0: So much more BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022